Welcome to a new episode of Signs, Cosines, and Tangents. I'm Jared. And I'm Sean. And this is a new episode. It's new to us. Straight from the podcast factory to your ears. May not be new to you. You may be listening to this again because of its excellent quality. You know how many times I've re-listened to podcasts? Almost never. I re-listen to our podcasts all the time. How do you think we have listeners? Oh, God. We have no listeners. <laughs> I'm a bot. I have a bot set up. It's just Sean lots of times. Well, you know, gotta feed the ego. Especially that E3 episode that you've watched that one or listened to that one several times. I'm sure you've loved it every time. Well, see, that's one where you can tell I'm the only one listening to it because there's like 42 downloads, maybe. Of, I don't you know. know. We're never going to do that again. No, no, we're not. So, Sean, how have you been? I'm not sure I want to answer that question honestly, so I'll just say, good. <laughs> when you pass somebody in the hall and they're like, fine. Yeah. Um, I... So, we've got a big topic we want to talk about this week. We're going to talk about Star Trek. Yeah, but we loaded ourselves up with like tons of tangents. It's our thing. It's, half of, it's one third of our title. You, you say that every time. It's also about one third plus of our running time. It's like half of a running time. Usually. We've got a formula. We need to stick to it. Yes, sir. That's right. No, I kid. I kid. Um, so I'm disappointed. Why? Because I was hoping we would be able to do this as a live cast. Yeah. So some of you may have seen on Facebook, uh, last week I did a trial of a setup of doing a live show. It's Mm -hmm. something that we still anticipate doing. Um, I didn't want to do it today, so it's all my fault. I didn't say that. I just said I'm disappointed. I'm not mad. I'm I'm allowed to be disappointed, right? Mm, I can have expectations and hopes and dreams, and and I can fail to meet them, Yeah, which means disappointment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do that. I didn't pin any individual blame on you, Jared, but now that you mention it. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do that. But anyhow, we are going to announce a live show. Sean just needs to let me know when he's going to be free, and we will put it up on the Facebook and Twitters. Yeah, because I'm the one with the busy social schedule. What? Oh, my God. (laughs) This is the argument all the time. No, but we'll let you guys know in advance, uh, and then let us also know what you want to talk about. We'll talk about anything we've already talked about. We'll actually be engaging with you, the listeners. Yeah, the goal of the live show is really to be interactive. So you'll still get the joy of a podcast, right? With Jared and I talking about topics and sharing our thoughts. And and with a three to five second delay, we'll respond to your thoughts. In three to five seconds, even after that. (laughs) Probably. So, I mean, the experiment on Facebook, I, I think, went pretty well. I think so, too. Uh, we had fun. a good number of people just kind of show up. It, I was merely doing it for testing, and we had a we had a quick audience out of nowhere. So, so you know, maybe maybe you are actually listening out there right now. No, oh, that and they're listening. The FBI. I doubt they're listening right now. We have to produce this first. Yeah, all the production work. Um, <laughs> so let's get into our tangent, Sean. Sure. First tangent. Yeah. Have you ever felt? That you were supremely supported in an uplifting social community surrounded by gamers? 
This is a trick question. It is. It leads into our first tangent, which is there were a number of developers in the last few weeks who've kind of come forward and said, you know, one of the reasons we don't tell people more about what we're doing and why we do it and how we do it is because gamers are dicks. And it's funny, I was um, recently on a road trip and listening to Felicia Days, not Gaze, Felicia Days, um, reading of her uh, audiobook, audio or, or her, her memoir. Yeah. And she has a last chapter in the book that they added before it was released, which released around Gamers Game. And she talked about how that whole thing affected her and, and how she'd always thought that gamers were this culture where we bound together and you know it was a commonality with strangers you could just say hey i game and they go hey i game too and then you're instantly have some connection with somebody else and how the gamers gate whole thing and, and that's a few years ago so if you don't know what gamers gate is you can go back and look it up we're not going to talk about it here but needless to say it was about corruption it started about corruption it, in games it originally started due to corruption in games and game reviewers yeah which this was after I had left journalism. the industry and talking about, you know, pay for reviews and, and, you know, all of this toxic kind of conversation around you can't trust game journalists because they're just going to do whatever the people who pay their salaries tell them to do. Um, it kind of mirrored the, the lack of faith in American journalism that was going on at the same time. But it was the first time we'd actually seen something like this in the gaming community. And she remarked that after this happened and she'd gotten torn down for kind of interjecting a few times with her point of view and again i'm not going to get into what her point of view was right or wrong she no longer felt comfortable just introducing herself as a gamer and the mainstream press caught on to this and anita scars and all these things started happening and she basically said it for her that it would have been the end of the open welcoming culture of gamers now my view is that the average person who plays games who identifies as a gamer is a pretty cool person, right? You can have a conversation. That that hasn't changed. What has changed is this sense of entitlement a lot of gamers have and this aggressive behavior and the anonymity of the internet is just made this worse. I'm going to interject right there. And do you think it's just localized to gamers. I no. don't think so. I think no, no, all no. Of that is we've seen a lot of that with nearly everything. Well, regarding the internet. And the internet has of- become a giant echo chamber. Yeah. Right? With and we've talked a little bit about this before with Facebook, but if you look at all of the social media platforms, they all work off these algorithms that only show you things they think you'll like, which is kind of contrary to the idea of an open public discourse. And we have the same thing happening in the gaming world. Uh, you know, if you talk to other gamers on groups like Google, Google Plus, or like that, maybe you get a different scan. But Twitter and, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all of these things have algorithms behind them that don't show you what people are doing anymore. Or in real time, or if I have a friend group, it chooses when to show it to me. So it may not even be topical or timely. And it's all built on how many likes and impressions can I get on each of these. And then I'll show it to people in your extended network. And that's kind of crap. And, and so anyway, a developer came out and said, look, if people would just be nicer, we'd be happy to interact with them. But 
most gamers that we interact with, and not most gamers, but most gamers they interact with, have become toxic. And it's not welcoming to people of transgender, other abled, you know, whatever politically correct term you want to use for different. Um, and, and women, you know, I was talking to my daughter because we listened to the book together and she says, yeah, I don't identify as a gamer. And I said, why? She goes, well, because immediately I'll get challenged for my creds. Yeah. What games have you played? What level did you play? Oh, you haven't even played that. You're not a gamer. Yeah. And, that, that, that stuff that, you know, when I was younger, yeah, I think I probably did, um, without realizing it, but it's stupid. It is stupid. Oh, Hey, you play, you know. Puzzle Palace? That's not a game. It's on mobile. Right. You know, it's okay. Or Puzzle Pirates, which I don't think even exists anymore. And then you have people that call themselves gamers that only play Call of Duty, which is fine. Um, I'm not sure that it's fine. It's fine. Whatever makes makes people happy, they should be allowed to do. Yeah. And if they have happiness out of Call of Duty, which is hard for me to understand... So be I, it. No, I understand completely how somebody can love Call of Duty. I, I just can't believe that that would be the whole scope of their interest. Right. So, yeah. So basically, not you posted an article, and it, it sparked something in my head where actually Jeff Kaplan, who oversees the Overwatch community and developer mm-hmm. updates, had posted something recently soon, basically saying because they have to... Uh, work with this toxic environment a lot a lot of moderation on the forums a lot of moderation in the games that it's actually slowing down game development and focus on the animated shorts that they do and all this other stuff yeah which yeah so isn't unusual actually yeah i mean i think that's true in not just gaming but in other media and i think the bigger and popular more popular something becomes the harder those hurdles become because if you're a small developer and you make something that becomes instantly popular overnight, you've got to deal with all these newfound, you know, issues that maybe as a smaller developer, you wouldn't have had to deal with so much where that community is a one-to-one they're working with you, like with Kickstarter or something. But once it becomes open to everybody else, then you have to deal with that kind of stuff. No, I don't know. This is just a symptom of a much larger disease Yeah, in our society right now. And this isn't the social commentary podcast. This is a video game and popular culture podcast. But, you know, it's kind of, it's getting worse from what I can see. And maybe this is just because I'm getting older. No, I, I, I think a lot of people don't think of these things as much as probably us older people do. I think. I just think respect in a conversation. Yeah. You know, it was harder when you're sitting in front of somebody to basically get in their face and call them stupid or ugly because they're sitting in front of you and they may just haul off and hit you, right? There's a repercussion for doing it. On the internet, there's no repercussions. In gaming, there's no repercussions. We've joked about it for years about, you know, how long going on an online game will it take for the first person to either call me gay or insult me in some way that's, you know, childish or asinine. And I always say, before you log on, that's how quickly it happens. Yeah. You know, while you're waiting in the lobby before the game even starts, somebody's already insulting. And they're usually like eight. And they're on. No, the worst thing is, it's not that it's the 12 year olds doing it. The 12 right. year olds I can accept, right? They're 12. <laughs> Dick and fart jokes. Great. Whatever. Call me gay. Call me stupid. You know, call me a noob. Whatever. 
but it's the 40 year olds that are doing it and the 25 year old bros and the 30 year old bros and broettes because it's not gender determined um there's just this kind of toxic culture associated with gaming right now and in discourse with people because i think because of the anonymity because there's no real repercussion well i'm gonna i'm gonna counter that and say it's not just in gaming i think gaming provides several different channels for people to interact with people on the internet you know you've got voice chat you've got You've got your Xbox Lives, your PS4s, your yeah. Discords, your Twitch chats. You've got all. You've got the Twitters. You know, people are streaming. They put their Twitters out there, and then that just gives people an opportunity to say whatever they want. That's you know, true. It's it's, and it's not local to just gaming. People just feel like I mean, they have to get their thought, or they have to say people are wrong. And it's like you said, there's no respect, or there's not. It's not even respect. Sometimes yeah. it's just you can't put yourself in somebody else's shoes you can't see no empathy perspective yeah empathy yeah and empathy is hard it's not easy um and we aren't i I I don't know it's harder for some easier for others but i mean it's it can be hard and and you have to take a step you've got to basically don't talk think so i'm gonna put my old man hat back on was it off yeah (laughs) of course uh I think we have a whole generation raised on media that's built around tearing somebody down or insulting somebody or making complete buffoons of each other, you know, and and I don't think that this is a new problem. I think it's just much more accessible. So, you know, the old practical joking shows and all of that, we're, we're generally not vicious. That's changed. You can find a YouTube channel out there that I'm sure is about people who go up and punching other people in the face and recording it and putting it on YouTube. And, you know, it's just this, we're feeding all of this dreck into our minds. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe I should just move out in the middle of the woods and whittle sticks. You know, and I, that, that was an argument that I read something recently. that was basically like that, you know, to help society, we can't get away from society to help it. No. So I don't want to help it. <laughs> it's it's done, right? I don't, but well, I'm not one of those. I don't believe that we're at the end days and everything's horrible. And I, I think it's worse in some ways, better in others. It's a pendulum, right? Yeah. We go back and forth. So, But from a gaming culture, I have to agree, this is a very toxic situation right now. Yeah. And then back on the entitlement, let's talk, you know, maybe the lesson, the... Uh, the threats and the the toxic language, but just the sense of entitlement sometimes. Like I kickstarted Mighty Number no. Nine, right? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not the most financial sound decision I've made in my life. But as an investor, would you do it again? Right? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. But going into Kickstarter, I know that it's a gamble. I'm not guaranteed anything by financing well, somebody else's. You're guaranteed something, but you're not guaranteed quality. Well, you're not even guaranteed something. I mean, they can run away. There's no insurance on Kickstarter. Oh, yeah. I mean, That's if true. somebody runs away, it's a gamble. So it's a small gamble depending on how much. I'm not going to go donate $1,000 to somebody. But but that's what Kickstarter is. It's mm-hmm. basically crowdfunding. You're taking up a lot of big investors and splitting it amongst a bunch of smaller ones. Okay. Where are we going with this? I'm just saying that sense of an entitlement. Oh, okay. When you buy a game, you're not entitled. read a review read about it that's the whole point of reviews know what you're getting into before you purchase it now 
Like No Man's Sky. It's a popular theme. I was waiting till we got around to this. Yeah. A lot of people were viciously angry. We talked about people making threats against Sean Murray. That's ridiculous. Absolutely. Don't wait for somebody to review it. Why why in the world would a video game cause you to be so angry? Right. Even if it was, even if you bought the limited edition, you paid $100 or $150. You got a game. It wasn't what you wanted. It wasn't good, but. That's, that's, that's on you, not them. Don't buy something from the game. Write a critical review of it. But don't threaten people because you didn't get what you wanted. So it's a matter of civility. Yeah, yeah. it absolutely is. And that, that, that just... and remember that these are people, right? On the other end of your hateful statements. Well, that's... Yeah, those are they're, they're real people just like you and me, but a lot of people just distance themselves from that and think they're big corporations that don't care about things, that don't have... They're just, you know, machines. That, and this applies to podcasters, too. Yeah. We're just a machine that... We're not even here. This is a computer algorithm right now. <laughs> um, that's a lot on that. So I, I think we might want to do an ex- extended version of some of that stuff. Um, okay. It is social commentary, but I feel like, you know, somebody's going to talk about it. Well, you know, this may be our first opportunity to pull back, you know, the listeners and say, have you had experiences where you've just gone into such a toxic, toxic situation in gaming that you wanted to walk away? And, you know, did you? Or if you didn't, what Why kept did you? you stick with it? Yeah. Yeah. So these are these are the types of things I think we can explore more in our live shows, right? These are the types of topics we can talk about interactively. Yeah. So after you've listened to this show, make a note in your little notebook that you're going to talk about this with us. Or on your phone, because nobody carries little notebooks anymore. I got one right here. You're weird. I know. So next, Sean, I'm going to let you introduce this, and then you're going to have to hold me back. So there is... A new Terminator movie coming in 2019 that will be sponsored and produced by James Cameron, but not directed by James Cameron. And it is said to ignore every non-James Cameron sequel. It's too late. Sorry. The entire Terminator canon is bullshit. Haven't we already talked about this? I don't know, but I it's think we, dumb. Well, maybe we haven't on the podcast. I know you and I personally. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. It's dumb. <laughs> Terminator 2 was a great sci-fi movie, but it exists as just the movie and nothing more. To make a franchise out of that series, you're going to run into some serious problems. Which well, and have. we'll get into a franchise with serious problems later. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm tired I'm tired of them trying to make Terminator a thing. I think it just needs to die for over a decade and then reboot it. Okay. Without so, Arnold. To get into that franchise with a serious yeah. problem, we'll just move on. I don't yeah. think they should even reboot it. I think it's fine. We don't need reboots. That's right. We don't. The story don't stands it. alone. Nobody's clamoring for a dystopian world where robots take over. We've seen it. It's been done. We live in it. We live in it every day. <laughs> wow. What's, what's next? So, franchises that have problems. This is... I wanted to wait a long time to move into the next one, but we talked about this a few episodes back. It's official. Avatars 2 through 247 are now filming in production. All simultaneously. 
Well, yeah. I mean, so, so the cast is still the same five people. They're right. just all filming all five thousand sequels right now. Yeah. So we'll we'll have we'll have Avatar for the next three decades, right? Yes. Blue, po- Blue Pocahontas is coming. <laughs> Blue Pocahontas. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, Divinity Original Sin Two. Sean, tell me about this game. I've never played Divinity Original Sin One because it's a PC game. Well, Divinity Original Sin is actually not a PC game. It was released on the Xbox. The original Xbox? No, the Xbox One. Oh. It's only a few years old. Okay. Um, But this is a Kickstarter campaign, and this is a game I backed on Kickstarter and and have been following for months and months and months and months. And the original Divinity is a world, and there's a bunch of games, and they go back about a decade, decade and a half. But Divinity Original Sin was kind of this throwback to the isometric RPG when they had that first resurgence about two years ago. And um, it was about this world where you played as these uh, characters called Source Hunters. And Source is magic. So you were people who hunted out people who used magic. Because use of magic was thought to just damage the world. The anti-muggle. Kind of. And um, so that game was really well known, but its sequel, Divinity Original Sin, takes place a few hundred years later with new characters, and all of the characters in this one are actual source users. And they've been captured and put on this island, and their their ability to use their magic is, is forbidden. But there's this huge sprawling world and this really enormous game behind this sequel. Okay. The other thing that this does is it's really a combination of great RPG with good story and, and really well-developed characters. It's known for its kind of funny side stories sometimes. There's a trait you can give one of your characters called animal friend or pet friend where you can talk to the animals in the game. And each of the little, like the rats in a dungeon, and they have dialogue. Okay. And some of them have quests. <laughs> that you can do if you talk to them. Um, the thing about Div- Divinity Original Sin 2 is it's one of these games that your mainstream gamer probably doesn't know much about. And it's it's even a format that a lot of... Because it's an isometric RPG. But it's tactical. So it's got some really interesting capabilities. Like the elemental effects. If you have fire, you use water to put out fire. And then your character gets wet which gives you a resistance to fire, but you're also more susceptible to electricity. I mean, it really treats the environments and the elements as very, very important. And in the gameplay when you're in combat is completely tactical. So if you're somebody who likes strategies and, and you know manipulating people's characteristics, as well as enjoying a really long, we're talking like 100 hours, um, Long and in detailed and involving story. And the reason I put this on here, aside from talking from that, if you're not, if you haven't bought Divinity Original Sin 2 and you're interested in those types of games, and you're going to need some time. It will suck you in. It sucked a bunch of people in in the last few weeks since its release. Uh, the other thing that it's got that I was looking forward to, and we'll have to see if maybe one of our Twitch sessions as we do this, it has a game master mode. So. As a game master, you can build scenarios and have other players connect into it, just like you would with, say, Neverwinter Nights. 
And that was their whole intent, was to kind of bring the game mastering back. Um, the other thing is, this is the second best reviewed game of the year. Like, hands down, it's like one or two percentage points last time I checked, behind Breath of the Wild. Wow. So everybody who's playing it pretty much is ranting about it. Um, people who pick it up and don't find it to their liking, okay, that's fine. The other thing I'll tell you, it's not a $60 game. It's a $40 game. So it's a good bargain, and there's a lot of replayability in it. So some things to think about. So when you say tactical, uh, are you talking grid-based? It is grid-based and turn-based. Um, it's, so it's kind player, of XCOM-like. So players of Fire Emblem or XCOM will probably get or some Or Mario Rabbids. Oh, you want to go there? <laughs> we'll, we'll go there in a minute. Okay, okay. Um, but if you haven't heard much about it and you, or you've heard something and didn't know quite what it was, there you go. It has my endorsement. I love it. It's a great uh, game. PC only, or is it coming to consoles? Right now it's PC only. Uh, but if they follow suit with what they did with the first one, it's on the same basic engine, so they should be able to port it. The challenge is it may be too big for the Xbox. Gotcha. Um, but it is also one of the other things about this that's a, an enhancement since the first one. You can have four independent characters join the game to play co-op, and they can independently travel in the game. Okay. So, you know, in most co-op games, you have to be near each other, or there's a rubber band effect. Right. In this one, you can go do anything you want inside the game. You can actually work against the other players, too. So, there's an undead race that the only way they heal is if they have poison effects. Or there are normal people heal through healing potions. You can actually, there's an alchemy system where you can make a healing potion that's actually poison. So you can slip it to another player. You can pickpocket and take things out of their backpacks without them knowing about it. It's it's all these kinds of levels of interactivity for multiple players. Okay, cool. Uh, I want to get through these next two things pretty fast. But first, I don't know if you knew, there's a new console coming. A new console. Oh my gosh. I just bought this. the last new console. It's called the Atari Box. <sighs> oh God. Atari's next new thing is called the Atari Box. Right. Classic. It's a Linux based console. Okay. They are it's gonna have a few original of those classic Atari games that everybody's clamoring to play in twenty seventeen. No. That's that's sarcasm. No. And get this, it's going to retail for $249. I can just get a Raspberry Pi for $40 and put all the Atari games That's on it. That's $50 cheaper than the Switch. What? <laughs> Atari, you're not going to make a comeback with this. Atari, you're not relevant. Yeah, I don't get it. And then uh, also recently announced, Commodore 64 was like, hey, if Atari's coming back, you're going to love the Commodore 64 Mini. Which Admittedly, lots of people love the actually, C64. Actually, the Commodore 64 Mini is actually cooler because you can program in BASIC on it. Okay. You know, it'd be a yeah. fun toy. I mean... No, it's a great... And, it's like one of those Sega Genesis flashbacks yeah. or... But, I mean, the the ability to pro, like do very basic programming is okay. a little more appealing for maybe a, a kid than a $250 Linux Atari box. Huh. Yeah. 
No. I don't know. Uh, Sean, as you predicted, uh, <laughs> Star Fox 2 is already out in the wild. Well, that took like eight hours. Yeah, I think the day the SNES Classic launched, it was already on the internet. There's already cartridges on eBay with it. So yep. if you want to play Star Fox 2, you can play it. And if you have a Raspberry Pi, just wait and download the ROM. Not that we encourage that. No, that's illegal. Don't do that. <laughs> Uh, Sean, you're going to love this. I didn't, I'll have to fix the description before we publish it. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if you're going to get this, but, uh, DC ha- is going to be releasing a 10th anniversary Blu-ray yep. collection of all the DC animated movies. Starting with Superman Doomsday, right. which was the first. Yep. Um, I have most of them, so I don't. And I'm actually considering picking this up because unlike DC's live action movies, their animated movies have been pretty solid. Just like their old, if you were a fan of the Bruce Tim era yeah, um, with animated series of Batman, even Justice League, like they're, not all think... that, they're not all that style. But if you love those, I mean, the quality carries over to most of these. I think there's only a few duds in there, but they're still probably worth watching. I was going to say, I've seen every single one of them, and yeah. I think there's only one or two that yeah. I would... And they're not bad. They're just not, not, not really good. That, not that quality that yeah. you expect from them. Because I would say most of those DC movies, if you're a fan of the DC universe, are pretty good. Makes sense. Um, also, we're going to move in quick here. It's official. The Wii Shop channel is shutting down in 2019. Well, they've already shut down the Miiverse, haven't they? Yeah, the Miiverse is on its way out. But I'm talking about the original Wii. Oh. Classic Wii. The old white waggle and the flick. The white whale. The waggle and flick. So okay. I'm not really disappointed by that. Well, what's sad about that is that was the most robust version of the virtual console. True. It had Genesis games on it. had TurboGrafx games on it. Um, I put in the show notes Rondo of Blood, mm-hmm. which was never released in the U.S., is actually on the virtual console on the Wii. Great, great game. Um. And all those games are going to go away. Now, if you have a Wii U, you can still get them through the Wii channel, through the Wii Shop channel. Not confusing at all, Nintendo. And, of course, it doesn't port to the Wii U, and it doesn't give you the ability to play it on any other systems. Well, that's the other thing, is if you buy games from this, they're going to be tied to that system that you purchase it on. And this pretty much guarantees, once this shuts down, if you have a console with any... Yeah, classic eShop games. Um, they're gonna go bye bye. It's kind of sad, but well, it's once not again, unexpected. Nintendo doesn't understand digital. No, but I'm I'm actually anticipating this day for the PS3. I'm surprised the PS3 has been supported so long. There's again that they run that same gamut of they have a ton of games on PS3, PS1 classics mm-hmm. that are only available on the PS3. There's, there's still a good reason to own a PS3 today because there's a ton of games you can download for I it. still download all my PS Plus games for the PS3 every month. Right. So, you know, that's going to shut down someday. Just a wonder of how long they're going to support it. Uh, anyhow, last tangent before we move into our main topic. Um, Cuphead came out last week. and I'm not going to review the game this week. I will say it's, good, it's great. But there's been multiple articles published about its difficulty. And it is a difficult game. It's what I would consider old school difficult. Okay. Right? It's a run and gun shooter, arcade-ish almost, right? Yeah. Now, the thing it does differently is if 
there's unlimited there's no live system so you get to play things as many times as you want okay what they've added in the game is an easy mode but the difference between the easy mode and the normal mode is easy mode doesn't have all the levels oh so what it doesn't decrease the difficulty it just no, decreases, it, it decreases the number the of levels it decreases the difficulty and also it's a fraction of all the levels that are in the normal difficulty. I, I don't really like that. You don't like that? No. Because there's been a ton of games that have done that in the past. Yeah, and, and I didn't like it then either. Hmm. I think if you want to make a game more approachable for people to experience it. I am all for accessible and, you know, easily just make the game levels open for everybody. But here's the thing. If people want to play Cuphead because it's gorgeous... I understand that. And then they get in and then they realize they don't have the fortitude to figure it out or they get frustrated and never get to see half the game. Fine. You have YouTube for that. Right. That's not a problem today. If you want to play it and get better at it, making a daddy can I play mode with only half the levels doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, it's It's like Dark Souls having an well, easy mode that's yeah and that's okay that's where you are and that i guess I think we're on the same page but um the whole point of the game is it's a, it's it's a all game about patterns just like Mega Man. yeah you have to learn the patterns to become better well dark souls is too yeah so it's an old style of thinking now this also leads into assassin's creed said hey we're gonna make a version of or there's gonna be a mode in assassin's creed where you don't even play the game. You can just go around and explore everything. Oh, okay, I'm all right with that. That's different. That's an open world sandbox. Right. Right, so you're experiencing a world, you're interacting with people, what have you. If you don't like the old kind of mission approach where you got to go assassinate somebody and you're not good at it, you never get to progress in the game, but you really like the series and you really want to see the story, I, I can accept that. Cuphead is not one of those types of games. Right. Um. I don't know. This is an interesting design choice. I'm not sure it's one I would have made. Well, yeah, and we we were talking, well, it kind of leads into our original topic, but in terms of accessibility, I'm for making games as accessible as possible. Um, but when a game is made for difficulty, it seems kind of counterintuitive to make an easy mode for it. But Yeah, maybe they need to label on the front that says this is a skill-based game. Right. In order to beat it, you need to develop skills. Nobody's going to be perfect out of the box. Right. And I wouldn't say thus far that it's so hard that you can't. Like, I remember playing, uh, like, Gradius 5 um, <laughs> for PS2. Right. And that's a hard game. That's a game that you're just not going to have a good time. You have to play it over and over and over. But this is not that level of difficulty. So, hmm. anyhow, Sean. Let's move on to our main topic. Let's go to our main topic. Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. So we're talking about Star Trek. This Star week. Trek. Yes. Actually, we're talking, and this was my proposed topic for the week, and my view is why we need Star Trek. Yes. And 
when I was putting down, you know, kind of what we wanted to talk about, and Jared's expanded beyond that a little bit, but um, I I have a very personal connection with Star Trek, and it's not because I was alive in the '60s and went through all that social commentary and all of that. I mean, right? Star Trek is a series that's been a part of my life since I was a kid. But it was even then; it was the original series was in, you know, reruns and syndication. Right. But it's this is something very, very important to me, and it's silly because we've talked before about my love of Star Wars, and I also love Star Trek, and I also love yeah. Stargate. I guess yep. I just like the star shows. I guess. Battle Star. They're, they're all different, <laughs> right? I mean, they all have a different. Star Wars is science fantasy yeah and star trek is science fiction well Um, in the thing when i compare the two star wars is a is basically a pulp science fiction or fantasy like flash gordon right right whereas star trek was always forward looking right it was always about this future where mankind kind of evolved and has moved out into the stars and we've overcome you know, hunger and all of these things to become better than we are today. So it was aspirational. Um, but for me personally, I mean, a huge part of my life was just kind of absorbing some of these silly ma- mentalities, right? Watching these dramas that talked about social issues that even in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was a kid, um, was still relevant. Right. The whole episode about race and how, you know, we're all really just the same. It doesn't matter which side of our face is black or white. Right. Um, the, the integration of a diverse crew, not for the sake of diversity. They did, it never felt to me like Star Trek was trying to force diversity. Um, at least the original series where they were saying, okay, you, we have to have an Asian character. We have to have a woman. We have to have someone of African-American descent. It was always just like, this is the character. They just happen to be these people. They wanted, you know, somebody to be Russian. That may have been the one inclusion where they forced it a little bit, which was Chekhov, uh, because he wasn't in the first season. But that was mostly to show that mankind had moved beyond our at the time and strangely recurring politically challenged issues between our nation states. Um, But before we dive into all this, because I've got this huge conversation I can go into and I'll share some personal background and I'd love to hear your experiences too, Jared. But I thought we should kick this off with talking about the latest Star Trek. Star Trek Discovery. Which is a series that premiered two and a half weeks ago. Um, which is the latest television endeavor. And we talked about Discovery two or three episodes ago, I think, yep. also, uh, where we were kind of not optimistic about... We were skeptical. Yeah, we were very skeptical about the product we were going to get. So here we are. We've seen the prequel episodes as well as the first episode that really sets up what discovery is probably going to be yeah and before we go further we're gonna let everybody know we're gonna have some spoilers we're gonna spoil something so uh if you're listening you don't want to hear it 
we're going to put a link in the in the uh, chapter mark so you can skip ahead. Yep. Um, that way you don't have to hear the spoilers. But like Sean said, the first two episodes were setting up a character. Um, well, in to some extent, setting up the world. Setting up the state of events of, of where we are. And the third episode was the actual first episode, in my opinion, of the show. Um, because well, that's the first episode they're actually on the USS Discovery, the name of the show. And, oh, boy. Um, so much I want to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, go ahead and get started. I'm going to jump in because I've got my own things here. But So before we dive into details about why something's good or bad, let's, let's kind of describe what we've got. So Star Trek Discovery has been billed as a series that takes place in the original, what they call the Prime timeline. It takes place 10 years prior to the um, original series. So the Kirk, Spock on the Enterprise. Uh, it takes place, actually, if you look at the timeline, two years after uh, the episode that would become the Menagerie, which was the original Starship pilot, or Star Trek pilot, called The Cage, um, where Spock is the second officer on the Enterprise serving under Captain Pike. And so this is a universe where Spock's already out of the Academy. Maybe he's newly assigned as a science officer, but he's on the Enterprise. Um, Kirk is probably getting... Well, he's serving as an ensign. He's probably on the Farrago right now. Um, so the, his big backstory, which they haven't alluded to, it was really meant to, to cover this period of time in Trek history around the Federation Klingon war, which is something we've known about since the sixties, right? The Federations and the Klingon have been at war. There was an open war for four years. It was called the four years war. And then in the course of the original TV show, you see that the Klingons and the Federation are about on the brink of a second war and a, and a race of people called the Organians step in and basically stop it. Well, in the original series, it was very much an allegory for the cold war. Right. right. Yes. So, I mean, it was except the Organian superpowers where they right. basically turn swords into plowshares and say, Hey, if you guys violate this treaty that we're going to force you to sign, we will do something bad to both civilizations. And the Federation's like, okay, cool. You know, we don't really want a war anyways. And the Klingons are like, uh, all right, I guess we don't have a choice. Now, ironically, because there wasn't a huge amount of continuity in the original storytelling of Star Trek, you never hear about the Organians again. But you know that they never go into open war with the Klingons or the Romulans or anybody else during that series. So... What we get here is the genesis of that war. We get introduced to um, a starship and its crew called the Shenzhou, uh, led by uh, Captain Georgiou and her first officer, Michael Burnham. Michael has an interesting background. She is a Federation citizen whose parents were killed in a Klingon attack on their planet, and she was raised as a ward of Vulcan. This sounds like our Metroid episode last week. <laughs> it does sound a lot a like that, Anyhow. actually. Um, and when I talk about a ward, so she was raised effectively by Sarek of Vulcan, who is the ambassador to Earth in the Federation. 
And. And? And. That makes her. father. Yeah, well, yes. Effectively, Spock's father raises her. Now, there's some inconsistencies, and I'm going to start digging into this a little bit more later, but her age and Spock's age and where that all falls and how they would have interacted. There's been some name dropping, too. She hasn't name dropped Spock specifically. And by the way, she has a a greater Starfleet career at this point than Spock does, if you put it in context. Spock is still a science officer on the Enterprise. She is the first officer on the Shinzu and has been there for seven years and is ready for her own command, is what her captain says. Now, as you would expect, things do not go well on the Shinzu because they encounter this ancient Klingon relic and they're not sure what it is. They had a listening post go dark and they have to go fix this satellite. And so they've got this typical techno babblish reason to go and, and kind of encounter these Klingons. At this time in the continuity, no one has seen the Klingons, supposedly, in, in 100, 100 years. years. Yeah. Math, again, doesn't add up perfectly because Broken Bow happens about 70 years before this or something like that. Um, again, the math, you have to be a, an uber geek to track all the star dates. Well, before you go too far in depth with this, so basically what what happens is Michael goes out to explore, and Michael's a she, by the way, in case we haven't made that clear, um, goes out to find the ship. That, or the beacon. Well, um, so there's a disturbance. Here's and I'm unclear about this, right? Yeah. I've watched the episode a few times. So they find their satellite, they bring it in, they have to repair it, they're going to put it back out. While they're doing that, they notice this thing in the debris of this meteor belt that doesn't look like a meteor or or an asteroid, rather. And so they decide to go investigate it. Now, did I miss something, Jared? Or was there a rational explanation for why she couldn't take a shuttle? No. I I asked that question to myself, other than that it's in an asteroid field. But she basically spacewalks out with a jetpack out through yeah. the asteroid field and has a limited supply of air and they're by a binary star system, so there's radiation to take into account. So they make it really dramatic. I can look past that. People have slow attention spans. They've got to make it more dramatic. Except yeah, going, they going could have just taken a shuttlecraft. Going on a shuttle would have been more efficient. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so she goes out there. It's like an ancient Klingon beacon. Beacon. Yeah. Right? And it's carved, and it's you know half stone, half machine. Um, and she looks over when she lands on it, and there's a Klingon there with Battleith. And she, what, jetpacks and then accidentally... He, gets, he attacks her, and she almost gets killed. But yeah. uh, she he triggers a misfire of her jetpack, at which point she flies into him and forces his bat left to I, kill I him? Think he, I think it was intentional, based okay. on the events of the show, that that guy was setting... It was a staged. Well, he was there to light the beacon. Right. Right. And they make that pretty clear. Um, and we'll come back to talking about the Klingons in a second. I want to come back to that. Yeah. But so she basically gets into a fight with this Klingon, gets injured, gets knocked out. 
um, breaks her, does the sci-fi trope of always breaking her face plate on yeah, her. With the HUD. Yeah. Yeah. With the HUD and loses communication with the Shinzu and starts floating off into the ether. She doesn't well, die. Well, she's, well, here, here's, the, uh, while she's being exposed to toxic levels of this radiation that supposedly will instantly kill her if she gets overexposed. It will actually sparse her DNA. So yes, her unspool her unspool DNA, DNA is what they say. And so at the same time, there's a hidden ship, a cloaked ship. That was a big thing for me because... A Klingon ship. If you've watched Star Trek, the next gen, they're... They talk about it, actually. They talk about it When did the Klingons get cloaking technology and who did they get it from? They got it from the Romulans. When they had an, a technology exchange about the same time the Federation went to war with the Romulans. So, yeah. In, they sh- in previously established fact, they should not have had access as a culture to cloaking technology. Now, I can give you an out. One ship having a cloak doesn't mean the entire culture does. And we don't see any evidence in that first two episodes. Right. But of I think the that's... other ships having a cloaking device. So, let's go back into continuity. And I had a conversation with a friend about this. Um what is continuity important for a show like Star Trek? That's expanded over decades from the 60s to the 2000s with Enterprise. Is continuity important? And I'll say one word. Midi-chlorians. Okay. It's a different series. You're seeing where I go with this. I do. The Force. If you don't explain it. Well, we we talked about this. You don't have to do anything about it. The Han Solo, one dumb thing from the last episode. Right. But when you do explain something... Why, like, with, especially with the Klingons and how they look, that was explained at some point. Well, yeah, they went back and, and explained why they look different in the old series. It was established. They could have just ignored it, which they, is what Gene Roddenberry actually said to do. Right. He made an off-putting joke once when Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, or maybe it was the second movie, Star Trek Two, and the Klingons in the beginning, and they asked, why do the Klingons look different? And he said, Tribbles. They have an allergy to tribbles. That's what he said at the time. <laughs> and people were like, what? But back then, we didn't have the internet, right? right? People couldn't obsess over it. And there were people who were upset about it. Um, but it's still been explained, right? It's now been explained in canon that they were messing with their DNA, altering themselves. Right. And it was a result of... Um, the doctor who created the enhanced augments right. that led to, you know, them having a genetic offshoot for the Klingons and then infecting them with human DNA. Right. And we'll, we can come back to this a little bit, but the Klingons in this show are very different from any Klingons we've seen. They are religious, ultra religious, right? So you're led to believe they're a spinoff sect of ancient Klingons that have right, been which missing. It's fine. Except I can poke a hole in that real quick. Um to to wrap around. So Burnham goes, has this encounter, 
the Klingons are watching the whole time, and they're talking, and, and there's some allegories here to our current political situation, right? Just like the Klingons used to represent the Russians in the 60s, I think they kind of are written to represent the Trump establishment supporter groups in modern political situation in America. They're religious fundamentalists. They believe that allowing their culture to be influenced and poisoned by incoming integrations, outside influences. There's a whole bunch of... I didn't pick up on that allegory until now you've said it. Yeah. I think it's... I, I thought it was pretty obvious. Hmm. Um, and actually, unfortunately, the producers have said the Klingons are Trump supporters. What? That they use that allegory for this. Okay. I don't think I don't think we needed to do this. I don't right? think so either. The whole point. Yeah, I mean. So let so let yeah. me punch the hole in the Klingon issue. Go go for it. So they're sitting there. They're talking about the the purity of KLS. So they kept some con- continuity. Um, and there's a point in here where I talked about continuity too, and we'll come back to this. Uh, what what is canon anymore for these shows? Right. But they light this beacon, right? So there's this blinding light. They well, I guess I should back up. They recover Michael Burnin. They throw her into sick bay. Three hours later, she's perfectly fine. Well, Star Star Trek Star Trek magic. Yeah. Great. So she she's on the bridge after getting her anti radiation treatments. She starts I, talking about... I would imagine after World War III and going into space that radiation is something that they can figured out with. pretty early on in the scientific achievements of humanity. Okay. All so right. whatever. But we won't fixate on that. Right. Except that that happens to her twice in the first episode. Eh. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's the second episode where she gets out of the brig and is exposed to the vacuum of space and is fine 20 minutes later. Right. Doesn't really work that way. Um based on what we know of vacuum today. Anyway, so the Klingons are discovered by Burnham. Burnham goes to her captain and, and has a conversation. Hey, I know it was a Klingon. Here's the video from my cam- helmet cam. And they're like, well, we don't know what the Klingons, nobody's heard from them. We don't know what to do. We're just going to sit here. And while they're having a conversation about what to do, Michael calls her uh, foster father. Sarek. Sarek. Yep. On on the cell phone with instantaneous communication. Now, the thing we didn't point out earlier is oh, that man. they were there to replace a long range communication beacon. That was the that whole was reason. Down. That was down. That, that was destroyed. Hurt. Yeah. But she's immediately able to call Vulcan, and at the same time, the captain is immediately able to call the admiral at a starbase with hologram technology. I can kind of excuse the hologram stuff. They're trying to visually, up- and we should talk about this, I guess. The visual updates, right? So the new uniforms, the ships look far more advanced. Um, everything has a new shiny kind of visual look. Right now, there's a licensing reason for this that I think we may have talked about earlier. This show, though it is a television show, and this is where Star Trek business is really confusing, was produced under the license given to Bad Robot, 
which owns the rights for the movies. Which is the movie universe, but they didn't want to do it in the movie universe. And they've because they get a lot of negative backlash on that. Right. So they're saying this isn't the movie universe, this is the prime timeline. But they can't use the designs from the original Star Trek because their rights come from Viacom, not Paramount. And and there's this whole weird rights entanglement that comes into this. Ultimately, they did it because they needed to update the look, make it they had lots of money and well, and this is going to come back with a couple other things, but why this time period? Well, I I still can't answer that question because for you. I, I'll say this: you, I don't know. I came in next gen. Now mm-hmm. I remember watching original series with my dad, but when I became a Star Trek fan, was Next Generation. And in fact, I think a lot of people came on for Next Gen, which is celebrating its thirtieth anniversary. Right. Um. Everything after that, you know, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, all same time period. Then they did Enterprise, which, okay, they wanted to show the formation of the Federation. That was their intent. Mm -hmm. And I think they did a really good job of showing why they don't teleport. Showing They built that as a part of the show for the fans. Right. But it was still an entertaining show. And by the third season of Enterprise, it had actually kind of found its legs. Right. Unfortunately, fourth season was not enough to save it. Right. Now, why choose a period 10 years before the original series? Because... Well, and here's the thing. There's nothing about this that would require that. As a matter of fact, if you set this 100 years after Next Generation... You could do whatever you want. Everything they establish... We haven't seen the Klingons in a hundred years. Right. They look different. All of that would be the technology of the ships has been upgraded. We've got a more militaristic uniforms. Well all of that could be easily acceptable. And this this goes into some some Trek stuff. And if you're not a Trek fan, you may hard it to follow. But you probably haven't listened this far anyways. Is. But and I really wanted to get to the the crux of what we wanted to talk about Star Trek before we focus on Discovery too much. Because we said we weren't going to do this, but we're doing we're it. We're doing but it, yeah. Star Trek Into Darkness. That was when they said... So, the movies are in a different timeline, right? The Somebody Kelvin from timeline. the Prime Universe. Yep. They um, Basically, Diverged. Romulus blew up in the Prime Universe. Yep. A bad Romulan named Nero, came back and said, I'm going to do the same thing to Vulcan. Totally upsets the universe, right? Or or the galaxy, Oh, absolutely. Right? Perfect excuse to do whatever you wanted to do with the timeline and continuity, right? You can make the Federation more miller, militaristic. Because they were attacked. Right, they were attacked. And they led into that briefly with Star Trek in the Darkness, right? They were building the super class... The the whatever it was that had a million weapons. This would fit perfectly into that with, oh, the Klingons war, and they don't do that. This is set in the prime universe. And the whole thing about the prime universe is our main topic. Is it supposed to be hopeful? I don't want to. Why? Why are we doing Star Trek with war? Because people are less likely to enjoy a philosophical show. I guess. Star Trek's not 
about war. Um, if you followed the series, Deep Space Nine didn't start off as a war, but it escalated to a war. And the whole point of the depiction of that series was to see the toll of war, to see the change in the Federation, to see the change in the characters, to see mm-hmm. the change in, in the interactions of everybody. It was a big event, and it took over a couple seasons. Yeah, the Dominion we didn't We didn't start with that war. We came out of next-gen happy times that had a bigger impact. Now, Star Trek has been off the air for a decade, and you're starting with this. You're messing with continuity. You're starting with a war. Um, and, and the other thing is, it's not... There's three episodes, so I told Sean, I'm going to reserve judgment because there was another star show that came out um, <laughs> that was vastly darker and different and was telling a serial story called stargate universe that won me over it, it finally did and so i'm gonna hope but this there's no ensemble here it's michael burnham 80 percent of the time and other characters 20 percent of the time and i'm not even i'm not even you're not sure you care about those characters. i'm not sure i care about her because uh. she her motivation flipped Instant, and she has personal motivations, right? With the Klingons, right? She's her parents were killed, killed, and so she becomes emotional. She's not a Vulcan; she was raised by Vulcans. So I get it, right? But so go ahead. I've here's my problem, and and this you get into this in the third episode, which is the first episode on Discovery. And I want to talk. I want to get to our second bullet point, right, in a minute. But the Federation is this kinder, gentler, more enlightened humanity. Even at this time, it's like that. They have their first mutineer. And in fact, the captain, the captain of the Shinzo, um, I liked her. I liked her a lot. Oh, yeah. Because uh, Burnham's telling her, you need to get their respect and fire on them immediately without any, uh, what's the word, motivation or uh, precursor. Right. And the captain's like, no. We don't do that. We don't do that. And I was like, yes, you don't do that. You're the Federation. That was great. (laughs) Yeah. And so when she gets court-martialed and sent to prison for the rest of her life. Stripped of a rank and stripped. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, again, kind of counter to what we've seen of the Federation. They'd be all about rehabilitation, not about punitive damage. Um, But when she gets onto the ship... She gets onto the Discovery supposedly by accident. And we have yet to see what's going on. There's something hinky going on no, in the Discovery. it wasn't by accident. Well, but we know it's not by yeah. accident by the end of the episode, the third episode. You know that the captain, Lorca, manipulated things to ensure that he got access to her. And he's a scary figure, right? Here's another, and, and I can talk about continuity problems. There are two ships in the Discovery battle group. There's the Discovery and the Glen. And they're conducting this research that leads to these things called Black Alerts. Would you like to talk about Black Alerts? Black Alert? Um, no, I'm going to let you talk about it. But <laughs> essentially, they are... And that's a, it's a, the, the premise is cool, right? Of what the research if is. If you're testing this thing, you want to warn everybody. Right. right. They're testing an alternative method of transit. Right, a bio space warp. Basically, basically, the fabric of space and time. They're tuning into that technical babble, but there's there's actual theories that go in line with it, which is fine. But as somebody pointed out, if 
Captain Admiral Janeway was reading the classified files of this research centuries yeah. in advance, she'd be like, dang it. Because it basically lets you warp, warp from instantaneous from one place to another. Well, and why would they have ever... Something obviously... If so, you look at this in continuity, something obviously fails here. Right. They will not succeed. Or what I suspect is going to happen is they're going to end up hopping realities. And that's what I think. Because... because the menagerie that they show you and the monster that they fight in the third episode obviously don't come from their reality. And I think that's what Lorca is doing. He's collecting these elements that come through every time they test this propulsion system. And then that's the mystery behind the discovery. Right. And that's a cool premise, right? I mean, uh, that, that, and that's my hope for the show. Honestly, it is, um, is that, they don't have to work because a lot of interviews with the showrunners have said like, yeah, we know we're messing with continuity or canon. Don't worry. We're going to explain it later. Yeah. And this is the perfect way to do that is to well, basically jump between realities. They're also showing the show in two parts. Like there's two half seasons and the first season ends after the first eight episodes. And then, then the back half happens. And they said that the show is completely different between the first half and the back half. Interesting. So I'm guessing that this may be telegraphed for us that this technology is going to yield some interesting results. And it may end up putting them far in the future. So we don't have to worry about continuity. Right. right. Um, There's a lot of hopes as a Star Trek fan of what it could be, but on the initial uh, ascent of the show, it's worrisome. Now, let's uh, we've beat up Discovery quite a bit. Yeah, um, I could go on for another and, hour. But we're going to reserve judgment as best we can. But we wanted to go into what is Star Trek? And I'll say Discovery is not Star Trek. At, least at this not point, yet. no. So here are some concepts of Star Trek, right? What makes something Star Trek? And this is something that the Kelvin timeline, the movies, Completely up until missed. beyond, yeah, and beyond even missed it a little bit. But up until beyond, the movies kind of missed this which is it's a story about mankind in the future and how they've come through all of these bad things and they've really become better, right? Humanity is good. The Federation are good. They're helping people. They're discovering things. They come across other civilizations. They, they observe those that aren't ready for interaction and then those that are ready to be introduced into the galactic stage, they bring them along. And and they introduce them to these things and they help them. And they're not speciest, right? I mean, right. obviously. And that's another be. thing that's very, very prevalent in Star Trek is our enemies are just like us, right? It's not that they're so alien that, that we can never come to common ground. We see this in the transition between the old series and Next Generation. Enemies we thought in, that we'd never be friends with, like the Klingons, become integral to the Federation by the time of the next generation. It kind of paralleled the development of Glasnost and the the relationship between the U.S. and the old Soviet Russia. Um, the other thing, and this is really the cornerstone of Star Trek, is exploration and curiosity associated with humanity. Mankind is always striving to understand. And that is the core philosophy, not just of Starfleet, not just of the Federation, but humanity. 
And humanity drives that in Star Trek. Vulcans, they've shown us, Vulcans are coldly logical and they, they're interested in the way things work, but they're not creative. They're not seeking the knowledge for the sake of knowledge because that's emotional, right? They, they don't look at things with wonder. Um, not that they're not capable of it, you know, but the Andorians. Andorians are very much like humans, but they have impulse control problems. Tellarites are amazing engineers, but they don't really have good social skills. They don't get along well with others. Humanity is the glue that holds the Federation together because of our willingness to accept others and our curiosity about the universe. And that is the broader, optimistic view that Star Trek brings. And honestly, right now, I can't think of a message that this society we live in needs more. Right. There's not really anything like that out there. There is one the TV. show like it, and we've talked a lot about it, which is The Orville. Right. And The Orville has its own drawbacks, which is that Seth MacFarlane's humor falls into it way too often, and it gets in the way, I think, sometimes. It right. also is a strength of it. Because it's like taking everyday people and putting them in the Star Trek universe. Makes it a little more relatable. But it feels more optimistic than this. Right. And again, it's a war show. It's they're at war. They're trying to develop new technologies to win the war. I get it. I don't that's want not why, to. That's not why <laughs> we fell in love with Star Trek. There's always there's a story about what it is to be human. You know, a very famous Next Generation stories with Data... And Data is an android, and he basically goes to court to say that he is a person, right? right? And it questions what is personhood, right? And they do it very well. It's not just like, well, he has thoughts, so he there is. Well, and that's always and, been the hallmark of Star Trek that set it aside from other science fiction goes shows, rather, is it's trying to tell a bigger story. It's trying to tackle bigger philosophical concepts and gene roddenberry from all in indications was somebody who eventually who stumbled on this i think and worked with some really amazingly talented writers to tell these stories and unfortunately i think because of the success of star trek over the decades and it was hard fought right it was never popular and it didn't become popular until it was in syndication they tried to bring it back as a TV show. That failed. They tried to bring back it as a movie. That originally failed. Then they actually made a movie, and it did okay because of the Star Trek, Star Wars parallels, right? Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek, the motion picture, and Star Wars all came out in a certain amount of time. Um, but where I was going here is Roddenberry, his ego got in his way by the time Next Generation came around. And he was doing things like saying crews on the starship will never have interpersonal conflict because humans have evolved beyond that. Yeah. Okay, and so that, you gave the writers nothing to do. Right, and that was that was kind of a fall, but a benefit of, of Next Gen. But that's what made Deep Space Nine more compelling, right? Next right. Gen was the series where everybody gets along. Happy hunky-dory days. Then, after you have that framework of what Next Gen was, you introduce Deep Space Nine, and you say, well, yeah, the Federation's here, but there's things... This isn't really a Federation station. Right. 
that's not how the rest of the galaxy works right so i mean things don't work out as well um and then with voyager you had a crew of the federation trapped so far from home and we could argue about whether it was well executed or not right but they had to influence people who had no concept of humanity or the federation and so you know it still carried that through line about humanity um I think we've probably hit the philosophical beats right hard enough. Let's talk a little bit about confusing timelines. Oh, don't get me started. So up until Discovery, we had two basic ways to experience Star Trek. You had the movies, which are purposely set in a different continuity. The recent movies, the J.J. Abrams right, movies. Not- there are ten Star Trek movies that all take place in our beloved timeline. But the reality is that Star Trek Nemesis was such a stinker that it killed the profitability of Star Trek. At the same time, Enterprise and Voyager were kind of losing viewership. Right. So, but again, you see this with a lot of series that go on for a long time. You try to do the same thing. You don't do things different. It's hard yeah. to keep viewership. So, yeah. So there was the Kelvin timeline, which we talked about, where basically you do a, sort of a reset of what things could be to make them different. Well, a little creative vibe, uh, creative yeah. runway. And it was more action focused, more Star Wars feeling, actually. Right. Which is a J.J. Abrams thing, right? He always said he was never a fan of Star Trek. He was always a fan of Star Wars. And he's coming back to direct episode nine. nine. <laughs> yeah. Nah. Um, if you were a fan of the original timeline, about the same time they announced the Kelvin movies, right? Star Trek, the motion picture with Chris Pine. They also launched Star Trek Online, the MMO, massively multiplayer game, which continued continuity in the original timeline. So there is story set after Nemesis. Yeah, and, and again, I so... The thing that sets off the new timeline is the destruction of Romulus. Romulans were sort of the the de facto enemies of the Federation. Next uh, generation. Next generation. More militaristic, more secretive. Well, they're the Romans. They're space Romans. Right. Now, I propose this. Wouldn't it have been a more novel idea, since you have all these Romulans that were... um, Homeless? Stranded. Homeless. To integrate them into the Federation, the Federation so, comes to help them, right? You need to play Star Trek Online because they be, address all of those points. But wouldn't that be a better TV series? You have a bunch of people, a lot of former enemies, a lot of a lot of contention there, and you're forcing them to work together, right? Yeah. Which, again, would be a message we could use right now. <laughs> um, so I, I thought that was... Well, and I will say that in Star Trek Online, they actually have addressed that, and that did happen. You have now you have the ability to play as a Romulan, a Klingon, or a Federation officer. And they added this in over time and they told a story about what happened in the Romulan diaspora. You know, when the planet was destroyed, the Romulan Empire fell. And it was already, you know, it had been through the war with the Dominion and bad things had happened and you know, major powers like Cardassia, who would have been able to swoop in and take advantage of it, were so messed up because of the Dominion War that they couldn't do it either. And the Klingons didn't do it. So Star Trek Online has really got some good storytelling. 
Um, if you're into... The problem is I don't want to have to experience Star Trek through an MMO. And that's well, the sad part. Yeah, unfortunately. And they so, also resolve what happens to the Borg and the Alpha Quadrant and stuff like that. But So now I think we really have three continuities. And, and this comes to my next point, which is the expanded universe. Just like with Star Wars, it had all these novels and all of these side stories that continued talking about these characters after their series ends. Right, so there's tons of DS9 books that take place after Cisco sacrifices himself in the last episode of DS9, and it talks about Kira and Dax and Bashir and all those characters. Um, but with Discovery, what they have said, very similar to what Star Trek or Star Wars said, if it wasn't in the shows, if it, it isn't happen. in the show, it didn't happen necessarily. But we will feel free to pick and choose what we like to keep. And the one example I have in Discovery's first episode is part of the Klingon stuff, where they talk about the Black Fleet, and they go into battle with their dead in sarcophagus, basically magnetically sealed to the outside of their starships. This is a concept that was originally introduced by a writer named John M. Ford in the 70s in the gap between Star Trek and what eventually became the motion picture. And this was apocryphal in the fact that it was also the basis, so many of the concepts that he introduced in his novels were the basis for the FASA RPG at the time, which explained why movie Klingons looked different from original series Klingons, again, through genetic engineering but a different thing. There were also, so there were Klingon human hybrids. There were also Klingon Romulan hybrids. So the Klingons would send agents into Romulus that were genetically altered, just like they did with the humans. Um, this was actually one of the reasons that Paramount ended its license with FASA for the role-playing game when Next Generation came out was there was all these concepts because there wasn't a lot of information available. So the FASA RPG writers expanded the universe. And Paramount said, yeah, we don't really like this. We're yanking your license. But for 20 years, all of the source of interesting and new Star Trek knowledge came out of this expanded content. The role-playing game, the books, the comic books, all of that. So much so that some of the designs for Starfleet ships came from the FASA role-playing game and were just adopted by the movie folks who then said, okay, we'll build that model and that background, but we may change it a little bit. Um, ultimately, we're seeing the same thing happen with Star Trek that we saw with Star Wars. The corporate interest will always be whatever the newest product is and not letting anything that's established in continuity, or if it's inconvenient, it can be overwritten. Right. And, I mean, that just goes back to our discussion about continuity. And uh, here's why I think continuity is some people don't care. I know there are people out there that don't care that things look different, right? They're, it's an interpretation, right? Yeah. But there, there are O's that do care. And you know why they care? Is because it leads to a richer world that makes sense to them. It helps. Uh, what's the word? 
I'm looking. You're, I don't know. Absor- you get a, more absorbed in it. it seems immersed. Immersed, right? It's, yeah. it's much more immersive when things congeal and make sense and there's continuity. Um, right. And you don't have to consume every side right. story to get the main right. value. They're, they're, they're value adds, but that's, that's why I think it's important. That's why it's kind of hurtful to long time, some long time fans. Now I'm not entitled. Like we said before, mm-hmm. they can do what they want, but they risk losing people viewing and promoting the show so, as a result of that. I'm not entitled either, but I am somebody who knows an awful lot about what they've right. said before. And I'm okay if you give me a rational explanation. And I don't want you to cater to me. So I'm not the only person you should be talking to. You right. need to tell a good story. Right. And they have they have a challenge right now to bring in new people, right? If they're just going to promote Star Trek for Star Trek fans, they can only do that for so long. And most of them are starting to die off. Right. Because they're baby boomers. Um, lastly, video games of Star Trek. Yeah, we have to bring this back. We're a video game show, so um, there have been some good ones. Have you? Um, so I put a list. By the way, I put I put the list together. I want to see, looking at the list before we walk through it, Jared, is there anything you would add to this? I added one. The pinball table? Yeah, it's really okay. good. Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, no, and I think I've only played one of these. I think I may have played Bridge. Bridge Commander? Is it the older one? There's Bridge one. Commander was made by Totally Games, who made X-Wing. Yeah. And it I'm... is a first-person slash third-person yeah. Starfleet battle simulator. But it has a story. And it's set in next generation, and you go through various ships, and right. it's a really good game. But uh, so the one I have to call out first is 25th anniversary, right? We're we're at the 50th anniversary of Star Trek now, <sighs> but Man. Star Trek 25th anniversary was your old fashioned kind of adventure point and click game, and it was remarkable for having been one of the first ones put on D or a CD ROM, and it had fully voiced speech by the original cast and it was set during a mythical fourth year of the five-year mission Hmm. um and then it had a sequel called judgment rights which was much more serial in its storytelling but again the cast came back and did the voices then bridge commander another great game if you've got a chance to play it the the good and bad thing about these some of them are still available like 25th Anniversary and Judgment Rights, you can get on GOG. Bridge Commander was produced by Activision under a license that no longer exists. So it is not commercially available. Uh, Star Trek, Starfleet Command was another one. Now, we didn't even talk about this. The Starfleet Command board games that have existed since the 70s are yet another Star Trek continuity that Unless you played Star Treat or Starfleet Battles, you wouldn't even know that it was different. Um, and so they had a role-playing game called Prime Directive, and but it's a different timeline even than the main timeline or the Kelvin timeline. And they still continue to produce games um, in that universe. Uh, Star Trek Armada was an RTS. Good game. There was two games in that series. Uh, Voyager actually had two tie-ins, and they introduced a really interesting concept, which was the hazard team. 
which is the idea that on every starship, Starfleet ship, they create kind of a special forces unit to do specialty away missions. Uh, we actually saw kind of the resurrection of this in Star Trek Enterprise with the Makos. And so the concept of the hazard team and the Makos are pretty similar. And um, Elite Force was a Quake engine um, shooter. So it was interesting. And then, obviously, the next generation pinball table, which is very, very well known. Well known. And again, uh, all of the original cast members came back to voice it. Or at least a Picard. I forget whose voices are in it, but those are the original voice. Uh, were they cast sampled members. or were they actually recorded? I believe they were recorded, not sampled from the. I mean, there's there's oh, cool. various things that don't happen in the show, but it's authentic. So. Yeah. Um, tell me, I know about Star Trek 2013. I've seen video that was based off of the movie, and it was a bad like third person shooter. Oh, it was horrible. Like crap. Uh, Klingon. Honor Guard. So Klingon Honor Guard was another Unreal Engine first-person shooter where you took the role of a Klingon soldier and there was this whole completely Klingon storyline. It it was not um, a Federation-involved story at all. It was just, it was bad. <laughs> it, was, it was Microprose, I believe, who released it. And it came in under this just horrible, horrible license. It was buggy as heck. Um, what, it, what it was really well known for before its first patch, and you got to remember, this is pre-internet, right? So you had to connect to a bulletin board and download patches. <laughs> um, it would uninstall itself and delete your Windows install when it uninstalled. <laughs> because of a badly written uninstall script that had to be patched. Cool. Um, and then New Worlds was an RTS that was just so, so bad. It was horrible. I, I have n- it's like uh, Star Wars Force Commander, which was a horrible RTS game they put out for Star Wars. Uh, very similar. came out actually at about the same time. So All if right. you're looking for good and bad Star Trek games, there are plenty out there. Yep. And I'm sure there's games that I didn't put on this list that you may consider really, really good or really, really bad. If you do, let us know. Okay. So, uh, I guess to wrap up that topic is, you know, we feel that Star Trek's needed right now. Yes. And uh, Discovery's not really feel uh, fielding that need. So, I'm going to share my personal story about why yeah. I am so connected to Star Trek. I owe a lot to Star Trek. And I think I may have touched on this before. Um, when I was in high school, I met a group of friends who lived in a completely other city. Um, ironically through my mom <laughs> who played role-playing games. And my mom was talking to the son of this architect whose office shared the same building where she was working and they were in the smoke pit. He was smoking. She was smoking. He was like, 14, 15, and my mom was having full-on conversations with him. Not creepy at all, because he was the same age I was. And basically, they had this conversation about how I would play D&D, which, by the way, I didn't play D&D at that point, but mom didn't know any different. Um, Kids out there playing D&D. Playing the Dungeons and the Dragons. But they started talking about Star Trek, and... My mom said that I was a huge Star Trek fan and and 
um, the young man that she was talking to was also an art student and I was an art student and we had a lot in common and we should get together and get and you know, I got invited to go over to his, uh, house or with his friends group to join this game. And they were playing Star Trek RPG, which was FASA at the time. And the interesting part is we didn't play at his house. We played at his friend's house, which turned out to be this girl's house. And this girl named Eva, who was the ironically also featured this whole group of gamers had been featured in the newspaper three weeks prior in the what we had the called the neighbor news back then but it was the local they would put a section into each um, Columbus dispatch for the regional areas that they produce kind of a local filler with and this was for the northeast side of Columbus and uh, there was this family and these these teenagers in Westerville Ohio who got together and did something positive instead of going out drinking they got together and played Star Trek well, I didn't know that there was this weird connection. On top of, you know, my mom having this conversation, my dad was actively working as a photojournalist at the time for the Columbus Dispatch, and he covered the neighbor news beat, and he had actually been to the house that I was in and had set up this picture with these kids. It turns out, this is the person who would eventually become my wife. So I met my wife playing Star Trek. So it has this really personal connection for me. Yeah. Um, of course, I didn't play that many games of Star Trek. We quickly moved on to doing other things as well. But um, And eventually I started running Star Trek games with that group instead of just being a player. Um, and I've got lifelong friends and obviously my spouse because of Star Trek. Yeah. And like we were saying earlier about community yeah and fans and they do have a positive way of bringing people together right and we weren't playing war games right, right. <laughs> it, it wasn't us blowing up the klingons every time we played so that's my personal story about why i care about star trek or one of the reasons there's yeah, many there's many all right, so thank you, Sean. Uh, we're going to end this episode with this week's One Dumb Thing. Oh, yes, and it, boy, is it dumb. And this has been bothering me for a while. But there's a show on Fox, which I believe is already in its fourth fourth season. Yes, and it premiered last week or two weeks ago. Gotham. Yeah. If you're not familiar, this <laughs> is a show about Gotham City. The city that Batman watches over in the night. However, the premise of this story is to focus on everybody but Batman. Now, Bruce Wayne is in the show. He's an adolescent. He's an early teen, preteen. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing. It focuses on all the villains that you may know. The Penguin, the Riddler, Poison Ivy, uh, the Crime Gangs of Gotham City. But they're all becoming the villains before Batman exists. And my favorite thing about Batman Batman mythology 
is there were crime. There was organized crime. Batman mm-hmm. came in. He dealt with that. And then that basically created a new vacuum for some weirder, badder stuff. Right. He, in turn, created these villains. This show is saying it's the other way around. And that the villains are creating Batman because they're now transitioning. The young actor, I forget his name, is into becoming Batman as a teenager. Yeah, and ostensibly. There's so much wrong with that. Bruce Wayne, before he was Batman, was a rebellious teen. He went off and explored the world. Well, they're doing that with Gotham. But the other thing is, and you didn't call this out, the main character of Gotham is Jim Gordon. Which he didn't even come to Gotham until later. Yeah. It's it, the whole premise is just again, it goes it goes back into to fans and and continuity and stuff and this is an experiment, right? And I guess it has its viewership with four seasons and or Fox doesn't have much these days. Um, but if you watch it, I want to know, I want to talk to you and this is a perfect thing yes. for Please our explain your logic because we don't get it. We want to talk to you during our live episode about the show Gotham because we just do not understand it. I've watched a couple episodes, maybe out of order and well, it's on Netflix. There's nothing. You can go back and watch every I, episode. I don't want to, I don't want to, <laughs> uh, I don't get it. So if you get it, explain it to us. Now, keep an eye out. We're going to post our information about our live show. Hopefully it will be next week. Uh, we're going to talk about all kinds of things. Gotham. We'll talk more Star Trek. Basically, we could do a wrap up on previous episodes just to see what you guys think. Because unless we force you into a live show to interact with us, we're not going to hear from you. So That's true. Yeah. Well, there's one or two people we hear from. Yeah. but And thank you, by the way, for absolutely. always... Giving us feedback. We do. We do listen. We we take it into effect sometimes. No, I I always consider it. Yeah, consider. It's considered. Yeah. So, thank you. Um, Make sure you subscribe. We're going to have a lot of news coming up in October because we've got our live event coming up to our marathon. Sean and I just need to nail down some dates. I think we've got the uh, technical stuff worked out. Well, I think it's going to be in November. It's not going to be in October. Well, yeah. So, cuz there's no free weekends in there October. Isn't. Man. <laughs> but we thank you for for listening. Um tell your friends about us, if especially if they're a Star Trek fan, we want to get that we want if people don't agree with us, we honestly want to hear what they have to say. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because obviously Sean and I do play the uh back and forth sometimes, but we're we're generally on the same page. We're really not opposites. This is not yeah. Hannity and Combs. Oh God! Right. No. One of us would have to be dead right now if it was. But uh, <laughs> and the but, other one would just be stupid. So yeah. So we do we do value differing opinions. So we do want to hear if you don't agree with us, and you know it'll help expand our worldview and become better people. Until next one. Until next one. I'm Cosines. I'm Signs. And those were some tangents. I think we're going to work on that. (laughs) 